Father, we thank you, Lord, for getting us together, getting us out of bed here this morning to worship and praise you. Pray, Lord, that you would uh, help us, Lord, to just fix our eyes on you, to set our minds on things above, not on things of this world, Lord. Has um, so much going on in this world, Lord, and obviously everything going on in the Middle East. We just lift up that whole situation to you this morning, Lord. We pray first and foremost that people would come to know you, Israeli people, Palestinian people, even Hamas, Lord, this, these wicked people. Pray that they would come to know you. Before it's too late, pray for the salvation of all those people, Lord, and that you would bring comfort, that you would bring peace, that um, you would just be glorified somehow through it all, Lord. And so would you speak to our hearts today, Lord? Would you bring encouragement to our hearts? Would you help us to rejoice in you as we cast our cares upon you today because you love us? So forgive us, cleanse us, Lord, and help us, Lord, to be more like you. Bless this message in Jesus' name. Amen. Title of today's message is A Christian's Response to the Israel-Hamas War. A Christian's Response to the Israel-Hamas War. And like I said, it's good to be back with you here today. I was gone for a week in California. My younger brother, Tommy, um, is officially married, and I survived the week and the weekend. I didn't quite realize how much goes on to putting on a wedding and a reception, I think, until this last week. See, on my wedding day, I just showed up. And then that was it. And we did the I do's and I was like, this is easy. But I got to I got a behind the scenes peek at a wedding and a reception as I was helping out my mom pick up all of these waters and all these materials and supplies and hanging lights and and putting together a whatever you call it, a teaching for the wedding and all of that. And so praise the Lord, it all went relatively smoothly and we made it back and we're we're here today. So praise God. Good to be with you. Uh, with that said, um, if you're like me, you've been probably checking the news daily or um, every couple hours. I've had to like take a break at times because I'm like, okay, is the U.S. in the war yet? Is uh, Has Israel gone in? Are they in Gaza yet? Uh, what about Hezbollah, uh, Iran, what Egypt? What, what are they all doing? Uh, and so are the hostages released yet? And so on and so forth. And so I've been reading articles and watching documentaries and interviews and listening to debates and and all this all these things just to get a better grasp of what's going on of an overview a history of all the things going on in Israel you have a lot of prophecy experts so to speak coming out of the woodworks is this the end of the world is this it um stoking a lot of fear and whatnot even have hollywood stars who have joined together, some have saying ceasefire, we demand a ceasefire. Joe Biden, go to Israel, tell them to have a ceasefire. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. You have 700 or so Hollywood stars, figures that actually sign an open letter in support of Israel. So people are on both sides, taking sides. Which side are you on? What's go? All these questions. Um, I've been reading a psalm every morning. And I landed yesterday on Psalm 122. I've just been reading a psalm a, a day when I wake up, get out of bed. Psalm 119 took me a couple days. So I, I'm not trying to read through them fast. I'm just trying to meditate on a psalm as I get out of bed. Because when you get out of bed, it's like, what are you thinking about? I mean, aside from the horrible news that we typically get on a day-to-day -day basis, as it is if there wasn't a war, you know, we want to fill our minds with God's word from the moment we get out of bed. When we rise, say a prayer to him, 
get get a verse, meditate on it, maybe a psalm, a proverb. Um, it's just a good practice to have. And so Psalm 122 was my psalm for yesterday. And, and verses 6 through 9, Psalm 122 verses 6 through 9, they, these verses hit me. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. May peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say, may peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. So you can imagine as I'm getting out of bed and putting together notes for this message, but talking about the Israel-Hamas war, this is the psalm that I'm reading. These are the verses that I'm reading to pray for peace in Jerusalem, pray for peace in Israel. Now, it's hard to have peace when 7,000 rockets have been fired into your land, when over 1,400 of your own have been killed, more than 4,600 injured, over 200 hostages taken. It's, it's hard to have peace in that situation. Um, I believe some people some of the Israelis, the Jewish people, are perhaps have the sentiment of Psalm 120, verses 6 and 7, where it says, Too long has my soul had its dwelling with those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. As we know, many of the countries surrounding Israel, the terrorists and such, they're not content until they destroy Israel. They're relentless in that. And so we're to pray for the peace in Jerusalem. We're to pray for peace in Israel. And we're ultimately to pray that they would encounter the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. That should be our ultimate prayer, you know, when we're praying for peace. Peace with God through Jesus Christ. That's Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, if they had peace in the Middle East, if there was peace between Israel and Hamas, and then you could have all the political pundits saying, see, we finally have peace now. But they can have peace, and then they could all be damned for eternity, right? And so what we need to be praying for ultimately is that they have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And you're not going to hear that on the news. Israel needs true peace through their Savior, their Messiah, Jesus Christ. Same for the Palestinians, Hamas, same with all these Muslim ter territories. People aren't talking about the true peace that is needed there in the Middle East and all over the world. And so these political pundits and celebrities and everyone's weighing in, everyone has a side, everyone has an opinion, right? I've heard it's actually said, and this should be true of every Christian, that we care about all suffering. Because some say, well, you guys just care about salvation of people. You don't really care about like the physical needs of people, like the starving people around the world, those who are suffering in Israel, the Palestinians, like you don't really care about them. No, Christians, we care about all suffering. We care about temporal suffering, suffering in this world, and we care about suffering in the world to come. And that's why we want to tell people about Jesus. Galatians 6.10 says, So then, while you have opportunity, do good to all men, especially the household of faith. We're to do good to all people. We're to take care of the poor and the needy and the widow and the sick. And we're to be like the good Samaritan, right, who bandaged the wounds of his enemy and cared for him. That's what we're to do. Hebrews 13.3 
says, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those ill-treated since you yourselves also are in the body. See, it's been hard for me to pray for Israel. It's hard for me to pray with a lot of the issues that go on in the world when I'm just comfortable in my own little bubble. And I think the writer to the Hebrews is saying that to the Hebrew people that he's writing to in the first century. Remember those in prison as if you were in prison with them. Okay? It's as if you were there. Pray for Israel as though you're in the IDF, as though you're one of the soldiers, you're on the front lines, as though one of your friends' houses was terrorized or your family was terrorized. Or if you were in Palestinian, if you were in the Gaza Strip and you're a Palestinian and your house was blown up, or, you know, if you were there, pray as though it was happening to you. How would you want people to pray for you if you didn't know the Lord? How do you want people to pray for you when you're suffering and going through things? That's the way that we are to pray. So the, so the sufferings of the Jewish people who have been killed, who have been injured and taken hostage, that should break our hearts. The suffering of the Israeli soldiers who have died and who are suffering, that should break our hearts. But we forget there's, and it's been estimated, there's 50,000 Palestinian Christians in the Gaza Strip. 50,000 of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Christian churches are gathering as they're gathering together and they're they're suffering too. So we should feel sympathy with them as they're suffering, as they've been suffering under this ruthless leadership of Hamas, right? That should break our hearts. The fact that many Jews and many Palestinians don't know Christ, that should break our hearts. So we need to pray for peace. That's God's heart. True peace. Romans 10.1, and that's Paul's heart in Romans 10.1. My heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. It's his heart's desire. It's God's heart's desire. The book of Romans, it says that God's hands have been outstretched all day long to an obstinate and disobedient people. His arms are still outstretched to Israel. We need to pray that we'd have a heart of Romans 9, 2, and 3. The same heart as the Apostle Paul when he says, I have a great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. A great and unceasing grief, a continuous grief. That's the heart of God. That's the heart of Jesus. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stone the prophets and kill those who, who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen does her chicks under her wings. You were unwilling. Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem because they will not turn to their Messiah. And it's the same thing today. God's heart is that they would be gathered together to him. So if we don't have that heart, if it, if it doesn't break our heart that people are lost and going to hell and specifically the people of Israel, then we need to have a heart check. We need, to, we need to pray that we'd have the heart of God, the heart of the Apostle Paul. In Ephesians 6.18, it says, pray at all times in the Spirit. So if you're praying in the Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, if he's dictating and directing our prayers, he's going he's to give us a heart of compassion towards the lost, a heart of compassion towards the suffering, and a heart that they would know Jesus Christ. When we say we stand with Israel, perhaps you've heard that saying. I'm going to refer back to it a little bit during this message. 
We stand with Israel. What does that mean? Does that mean that every decision that Benjamin Netanyahu takes, we stand with that? We stand with every decision that Israel makes. We, d- we stand with every decision the citizens of Israel make and all the soldiers, e- every decision that they make, we stand by that. No, that's, we don't have to answer for everything that they do, and we can still stand with Israel. When we say we stand with Israel, we're saying as Christians, we acknowledge the promises that God made to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, God made promises to Abraham. Thousands of years ago, God made land promises to Abraham. He made national promises to Abraham. He made promises of spiritual blessing that would go to the ends of the earth through the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. These promises were made to Abraham. They're made to Isaac. They're made to Jacob. And so we acknowledge Genesis 12, verse 7. God appeared to Abram and said to your descendants, that's the Jewish people, I will give this land. God again repeats that, Genesis 13, 15. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. Genesis 15:18. To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river of Euphrates. Again and again God repeats, I will give you this land. I will pr- I'm promising you and to your descendants this land. God has not forgotten that promise. God has not forgotten that covenant. Psalm 105 verses 8 through 11 states he, that's God has remembered his covenant forever. The word which he commanded to a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac. Then he confirmed it to Jacob for a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as the portion of your inheritance. God wants us to know, he makes it crystal clear that the land that the Jews are in today is part of his promise. His promise to Abraham Isaac and Jacob, a promise that was given 4,000 years ago. It was reaffirmed in Genesis 26, 3 through 5 to Isaac. It was confirmed again to Jacob in Genesis 28, 13, and 14. And what's true in Joshua 21, 45 is true today and it will be true in the future. Listen to Joshua 21, 45. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. All of his promises came to pass. And all of his promises will come to pass. So we acknowledge that though God dispersed the Jewish people all over the world, it's no coincidence that Israel has been gathered together again to the land that they're in today. The land given to them, promised to them thousands of years ago. If you'll turn with me to the book of Amos. Amos prophesied that God would bring Israel back. There's a lot of prophecies in the Old Testament about God regathering his people. Some of those were fulfilled in around 530 B.C. And some of those were fulfilled when Israel became a nation, May 14th, 1948. See if you can find the book of Amos. It's probably not a book that you... Read every morning? Perhaps it is. Uh, It's a minor prophet. So if you go to Zechariah or Malachi, you want to hang a left. If you're 
at Joel or Hosea or Daniel or Ezekiel, hang a right. It's a nine-chapter, small book, minor prophet. When we say minor prophet, why do, you know, they kind of get a bad rap. You got the major prophets and the minor prophets. Ezekiel, Jeremiah, um, Isaiah, and so forth, major prophets. And then you have like Amos and Jonah and Zechariah. Oh, these are minor. Well, it's just because they're smaller books, right? So they get titled the minor prophets. That's all. So Amos chapter 9, he closes out his letter with these two vitally important verses. And I just want to spend spend a minute or two on these verses. Amos chapter 9, verses 14 and 15. And this is God speaking. He says, Also I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. I will also plant them on their land and they will not again be rooted out from their land which I have given them says the Lord your God some say well this was brought about during the Babylonian captivity 70 years 589 to around 539 BC God said that he would disperse the people particularly to Babylon because of their disobedience, because of their idolatry, because their immorality, God said, I'm going to disperse you. And it's going to be for 70 years. And we see this in the book of Daniel. We see this in Jeremiah. They're all contemporaries of one another. And sure enough, God did this. And so some would say, yeah, but then God brought them back in 539 B.C. And so all these prophecies were already fulfilled. See, now God's done with Israel. God's replaced Israel with the church so we can move on. And everything you're seeing on the news and Israel becoming a nation in 1948, that's all coincidence. And let's talk about something else. Well, they won't exactly put it that way. But when it comes to this text and these two verses, verse 15, I think there's a, the phrase there, they will not again be rooted out of their land. That's very important. They will not again be rooted out of their land because after 539 B.C. when God brought them back, well, in 70 A.D., what happened? The temple was destroyed. The Romans surrounded the city, and again, the Jews were dispersed all throughout the land. And what didn't happen completely in 70 A.D. was brought about totally in 135 A.D. And since then, the Jews have been dispersed all throughout the world. It wasn't until May 14th, 1948, when God brought them back. And so Amos says here, they will not again be rooted out of their land. Listen to what Adam Clark has to say about this passage. Adam Clark, a theologian of the Westland tradition, lived in the late 1700s, early 1800s, during the time period when the Jewish people weren't predominantly in the land of Israel. They weren't a nation. When he wrote what I'm going to read to you, the Jews were dispersed all throughout the world. Listen to what he says about Amos 9:15. Quote, Most certainly this prophecy has never yet been fulfilled. They, the Jews, were pulled out by Assyrian captivity and by that of Babylon. Many were planted in again and again pulled out by the Roman conquest and captivity and were never since planted in, but are now scattered among all the nations of the earth. I conclude, as the word of God cannot fail, and this has not yet been fulfilled, 
it therefore follows that it will and must be fulfilled to the fullness of its spirit and intention. So here he is around the year 1800 as the land was barren, that the Jews were not regathered. He says this prophecy must be fulfilled in the future. God is going to again regather the people to the land. I love that when you look back at history and you see that theologians were looking forward to the fulfillment of these prophecies. So what Clark knew from faith, we see from sight now. We know it to be true because Israel is in the land. It's easy for us to go back and read these passages and see, oh, they all fit nicely. But when Israel's all over the earth, the idea of them actually coming back to the land is not as easy to believe. Listen to Mark Twain. He visited the land of Israel, Palestine, in 1867. He wrote this, quote, Of all the lands there are for dismal scenery, I think Palestine must be the prince. The hills are barren. They are dull of color. They are unpicturesque in shape. The valleys are unsightly deserts, fringed with a feeble vegetation that has an expression about it of being sorrowful and despondent. It is a hopeless, dreary, heartbroken land. So imagine, here's this heartbroken land. People, why do people wouldn't want to go there? There's no fruit. There's no. It's not flourishing. And yet we know what God's word said. And today, Israel grows 700,000 tons of fruit annually. 125,000 tons are exported to other nations, accounting for some $2 billion. This barren land, this wasteland, this dreary, broken land has become a modern-day oasis because God said it would. God has kept his word. He's brought his people back And it says here, they will make gardens and eat of their fruit, plant vineyards and drink of their wine. And so it is today. That should confirm our faith. That should strengthen our confidence in God and his word. When we say we stand with Israel, we also say that and acknowledge that Jewish hatred goes back thousands of years. People have hated the Jewish people for thousands of years. Just read the Bible, right? Remember Pharaoh? He wanted to destroy all the little boys. Egypt wanted the Jews, wiped off the face of the earth. Exodus chapter 1. You have Haman, Esther chapter 3. Remember Haman? He wanted to st- he wanted to destroy all the Jews. Pretty fascinating book, the book of Esther. God raises her up for her people. God's always raising up a Moses. He's raising up an Esther. He's raising up people today. Psalm 83, 3 through 5. I want to read these verses. Psalm 83, 3 through 5. Because they could, it's as if they were written just for today. It's as if these verses could be spoken of Israel's enemies today. The Jewish people and their enemies. Psalm 83, verses 3 through 5. It says this. They make shrewd plans against your people and conspire together against your treasured ones. They have said, come and let us wipe them out as a nation that the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they have conspired together with one mind against you. Do they make a covenant? Sound familiar? 
It's Muslim nations around Israel, terrorist groups making, a, making covenants and pacts together, Iran and uh, Hezbollah or Iran and Hamas and trying to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. That's what the former president of Iran said. To wipe, he, wa- he wants to destroy Israel. He wants them wiped off the face of the earth. In Psalm 83, 4, they have said, come and let us wipe them out as a nation that the name of Israel be remembered no more. The same satanic spirit is alive and well today. Even Hitler, right? Six million Jews wanted to wipe out the Jewish people during World War II. Satan hates the Jewish people because God loves them. Satan hates what God loves. Pharaoh, Hamas, Haman, Hitler, all inspired with satanic hatred towards the Jewish people. What does God say about his people? Zechariah 2.8. Let me give you some verses here. He calls Israel the apple of his eye. Those who touch you, Israel, are like touching the apple of my eye. You ever been poked in the eye? Doesn't feel good, right? Deuteronomy 7, 6. God has chosen you, the Jews, to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Psalm 135, verse 4. The Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his own possession. New King James says special treasure. NIV, his treasured possession. I love Isaiah 49, 15 and 16, but the verse right before Isaiah 49, 15 and 16, the Jews are asking, has the Lord forgotten us? It says Zion has been asking, are we rejected? Has God forgotten about us? I love what God's answer is, Isaiah 49, 15 and 16. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Is this just an old covenant thing? Is this just in the Old Testament where God chose the Jews and loved them and that's been reneged, that's done away with, he's now forgotten them. Jeremiah 31, 37 says, Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I also will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Can you measure the heavens? How big is the universe? Can you measure that? Can you get out the tape measure, God's saying? Because if you can, then I'm done with Israel. If not, I'm not done with them yet. So we acknowledge that though the majority of the Jewish people reject Jesus as their Messiah, God's not done with them yet. Jesus is the only way. There's no other name given among men, given under heaven, by which we must be saved. That was stated in the book of Acts. That's when the Jewish people, Peter and John and the disciples, were spreading the gospel around the world. And they were letting their fellow Jews know, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and other Jews, There's no other name. Just because you're chosen, just because God has a special plan for you and he has a special love for you, you still need to turn to Jesus Christ and live. See, some people teach, well, because Israel is this chosen possession of the Lord, see, they they get into heaven a different way. And yet the scripture over and over again, and even Paul's heart in Romans 9 through 11, I have this unceasing grief and sorrow in my heart I could be separated from Christ for my brethren 
because they are rejecting Christ, because they're on their way to hell if they don't turn to Jesus Christ and live. It's the only way of salvation. Romans 11, 25, and 26 states that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and thus all Israel will be saved. God has made the Israel the Israel people, the Jewish people, he's made them jealous, is what it says in the book of Romans, because he's allowed the Gentiles to be grafted in. And it's supposed to move them to be like, hey, wait, this is, this is our God. How is it that you guys are in? And it's supposed to cause inquiry and questioning and for them to return to their God, their Messiah, Jesus Christ. Has God rejected Israel? New Testament verses, Romans 11, 1 and 2. I say then, God has not rejected his people Israel, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Today it's estimated there's less than 2% of the Jews in Israel that believe in Jesus as their Messiah. Roughly 7 to 8 million people in Israel, Jewish people in Israel, about 100,000 maybe, some estimates, 150,000. That leaves 7 to 8 million left that don't know Jesus Christ. 98% of them reject their Messiah. And this breaks Paul's heart in Romans 9. It should break our heart because Paul says, look, they, the Jews were given the word of God, the oracles of God, the Old Testament. Romans 9, 4, and 5, they were given the promises. They were given the adoption of sons. They were given the glory and the covenants and the law. And through the Jewish people came Jesus Christ, born in the Jewish city Bethlehem, crucified in Jerusalem, ascended on the Mount of Olives. It's, it's all Jewish, and yet they've missed it. And the Gentiles, us, from all around the world, believe it. Paul's saying there's something wrong here. They need to know their Messiah. So is God somehow using this war, this conflict, and what's going on for them to humble themselves? Some have said, man, this has been a huge humbling act for the Israel people because of their technology, because of their sophistication and their, their wisdom, so to speak, and that they could boast in the Iron Dome and the walls and were, in a certain sense, were impenetrable, and then something like this happens. And perhaps it's God saying, you need to be humbled. You need to turn to me. You need the Messiah. You're not self-sustainable. You can't do things on your own. You need me. And the more that perhaps God will allow things like this to happen to Israel, it will be a means for Israel to cry out to their Messiah for them to be saved. And so I thought of an interesting correlation that just as the land of Israel was barren and a wasteland for hundreds of years before the Jews came back into the land, you could say that Spiritually speaking, Israel is like a barren wasteland today because they don't know the Messiah. And just as people like Adam Clark had faith in God and his promises that he would bring the people back, we need to have faith and trust God's promises that all of Israel will be saved because that's what the scripture teaches. And that seems so implausible. Wait, you're going to say that Israel can be saved? There's 2%. They're all rejecting their Messiah. How are 7 million going to be saved? Romans 11, 26 and 27 says, And thus all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. 
and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. God's going to take away their sins. He's going to bring salvation to Israel. That's on the prophetic map. So we should have the heart of Adam Clark saying God will fulfill his promises. When will it happen? What will it look like? What are all the exact ways in which it will come about? We don't know, but we pray for their salvation. We pray that the Lord would use us. We pray that the Lord would use Christians who are in the land, Messianic Jews who believe in Jesus, to spread the gospel. So we acknowledge that as dark and as heartbreaking the news is that we've seen and and whatnot, we and everything that we're hearing, and that no matter what the future holds, we can look up. We're called to look up. We're commanded to not be misled. We're commanded to not be troubled. We're commanded to cling to Christ all the more. As I'm teaching this, I'm thinking about, you know, Chad, I met with Chad and Holly, got to meet with Joe and Lisa and got to fellowship while we were back in California. And Chad was telling me how he interviewed a Messianic Jew, um, a Jewish man who, and I, I went back and watched the interview. And he's a man who um, was just struggling in life. He was depressed and um, actually thought about taking his own life. And he was at the gym working out. He was like a bodybuilder. And he saw these this joy in other people in the gym, specifically two guys and one of them he went up to, and the guy, one of them started praying for him and then said, in Jesus' name, amen. And he's like, as a Jew, I heard the name Jesus, and for some reason I was like, I need to know more about this Jesus. And then he went up to the other guy in the gym who was full of joy as well, and that guy was telling him about Jesus as well. And so long story short, he got led to Christ through working out at the gym through these two men who shared Christ with him. And now he moved back I think he lived in Southern California at the time. He moved back to Israel, and he's over there trying to spread the gospel to reach the Jewish people. And I'm forgetting his the website. Uh, it's on YouTube, but it started off with not too many followers. Um, I think it's called Let It Be, um, something along those lines. You can go on Good Fight YouTube and find it. But one of his videos has like 2 million views of him. I think it's on the streets in Jerusalem, and he's just asking people, do you know? He goes, I'm a Jewish man and I believe in Jesus am I wrong is he's the only way of salvation am I wrong and he asked them the question and you have orthodox Jews and different Jewish people saying they, they don't really have any answers other than some say well you can believe what you want and we can believe what we want that's predominant right but God's raising people up like that during a time like this like an Esther like a Moses to reach his people and to carry out God's will the thing is during times of turmoil in this world as things do get darker and darker these are birth pangs some say is jesus coming back is it the end of the world is this is this all happening now and we know that there's things that need to take place and we know that perhaps this conflict will continue to go on and then as it has in the past this is at a whole nother level than the hamas israel battles of the past or even the, some of the wars that they've been involved in more casualties more injuries, more suffering, and so forth. But birth pangs, for those of you who have given birth, you know, you have those contractions and then it mellows out for a little while. Contractions, it mellows out for a little while. So is there going to be a mellowing out for a little while? Well, it could be. You know, could God tarry? Could it be five years, 10 years, 20 years? Maybe. We don't want to get caught up in 
over making it over the hysteria, if you will. Like this is it. No, we need to be at peace. We need to be digging into God's word. We need to be looking up. But the world has no hope. During times like this, they start to really freak out. They start to get very anxious, worried, panic, fear. Is this the end? They don't have assurance. They don't have an authoritative guide. They don't have an authoritative book. They don't have any direction. They start looking inward, not outward. And that's what's different between us as believers. When times like this start to happen, our faith should grow stronger, not weaker. We should go back to God's word and look at his prophecies and go, yeah, this is exactly how Jesus said it would happen. If Jesus said, before I come back, the world's going to be at peace. Everyone's going to be peaceful and kind to one another. People are going to be singing kumbaya. They're all going to be joining hands, and it's just going to be, then I'm going to return. Then we'd have reason to question the Bible because we see the exact opposite, and we know that this world is going in a different direction. Matthew 24, 6 and 7. You'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not frightened. For those things must take place. But that's not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. See how he says it's not yet the end. He knows as there's going to be famines and earthquakes and wars. People are going to be saying, okay, this is it. You know how many people said this is it when Hitler was dominating Europe? This is it. Jesus is coming back any moment in China and in these other countries where Christians have just been terrorized and persecuted and martyred for the faith. They were told, this is it. This is it. Jesus is going to come at any moment. There's a story of Corey Ten Boom who went into different parts of China as the Chinese were being persecuted and she left for some time. I don't know. hope I don't get the story wrong, but... Before they left, they said to the people, okay, don't worry because before it gets too bad, before the persecution really gets hot, Jesus is going to return. Okay, so, so be strong in him. We, we got to leave, but you guys stay here and be strong, but don't worry, Jesus is coming back. And they went back after the heavy persecution and trials, and many of the Chinese were angry with them. So why did you tell us Jesus was going to come back? Our families have been destroyed. Our brothers and sisters have been killed. We've been imprisoned, starved. And you said Jesus was coming at any moment. Jesus tells us it's not yet the end. And he tells us to prepare for tribulation. But the scripture says if God is for us, who can be against us? If he's for us, we know that God works all things together for the good, for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. We don't need to freak out. He says do not be frightened. Greek word throeo. It means unsettled, thrown into confusion, thrown into an emotional uproar. To be alarmed and startled, Jesus says, do not see to it that you're not frightened. See to it you're not going the way of the world as they're in hysteria and they're freaking out. John 16, these things I have spoken to you so that you may have peace. In this world, you will have tribulation, but be of courage, I have overcome the world. Jesus has overcome. We overcome in him. We know the end of the story. We know we can look up because he will return victoriously. Luke twelve thirty two. do not 
be afraid, little flock. Don't be afraid. Why? For your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. So we can rejoice. And we also need to be discerning. Don't just turn on the news and turn off your brains. Don't just go online and think everything you read is true. I was reading this article about, I wanted to print it out because I ran out of room to write it in my notes, but it was a long article about a doctor who came back serving overseas and he contracted Ebola in New York. He contracted it overseas, brought it back to New York, didn't know he had it, so he was going around, whatnot, visiting family, and then he wasn't feeling great, so he checked himself, I think, into a hospital and they found out he had Ebola, but they, they realized that it wasn't contagious during the time that he was around people. Although they knew this, the media got wind of it and just started blasting out all these different articles. Man with man is contracted with Ebola, Ebola in New York, this about Ebola. And the article goes on to say before an hour or two or several hours later, millions and millions of retweets and likes and clicks and fear tactics and all this stuff went all over the world. Well, it was contained. He wasn't contagious. Nothing was going to happen. Yet the media kind of hid that part of it because there's a lot of money involved. There's a lot of profit involved when there's fear, when there's articles on division or divisiveness or things that stoke anxiety in people. This, This generates clicks. They know what they're doing. We need to be discerning. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. And then Philippians 4.8. Finally, brethren, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's of good repute, if there's anything excellent, anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Dwell on the truth. Dwell on things that are right and honorable sit here and dwell all day on things that we see and hear around the world and on the news, you're going to be burdened. You're going to be weary. You need to refresh yourself in the word of God, in truth. So all death, as I get ready to bring this to a close, all death, of course, is heartbreaking. All suffering concerns us as Christians, but don't get caught up in the media frenzy, the fear-stoking, the panic instigating, divisive, promoting, disorder propagating sound bites of the world. It's all over the place. Rather, Scripture says, encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews 3.13. Look for someone to encourage. Find encouragement in God's word. Get in fellowship. Stay in fellowship. Again, Hebrews 10.25, encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Christians need more encouragement as times are growing darker and darker, not less. It's not time to get out of fellowship and get out of God's word. It's time to press in all the more. When you look at the early church in the book of Acts, they're continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, prayer, and fellowship. They're being persecuted and yet they're pressing in all the more, devoting themselves all the more to one another. It says they were in awe and they were rejoicing. That's how the church is strengthened in these last days, gathering together, encouraging each other. 
because everything you're hearing outside of these walls, when you turn on the news and when you talk to people, it's going to be fear and panic and anxiety and, and what's next. No, we need to ground ourselves on Christ, the solid rock, his word, so that we do not fear. A couple more verses as I close. Colossians 3.14, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the peace of Christ rule your hearts. What rules your heart? If the news is ruling your heart, if, if what's happening next in the world's ruling your heart, if panic, anxiety, and fear is ruling your heart, then we need to go back to God's word. We need to say, Lord, help me to let your peace rule in my heart. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ, and this is the key, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And that's the battle, the flesh and the spirit. The spirit's willing. Jesus said the flesh is weak. Jesus told his disciples, can't you pray with me for just one hour? They're falling asleep. He goes back to them. Can't you pray with me? Come on, pray with me. This is a huge trial I'm going through. They're asleep again. Three times Jesus went back to his disciples. Oh, but we're tired, Jesus. Now is not the time to be tired. I need prayer. I need companionship. I need you guys. Okay, I was with you three and a half years. You, you could have slept all that time, okay? Now's the time I need you. Wake up, be alert, be sober-minded. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, and who does he devour? Peter, who was sleeping. Peter then is tempted and three times falls on his face. You say, but it's hard to pray. It's hard to read. Yep, Jesus said it would be hard to pray. It would be hard to read. God gives us these examples in Scripture. So what I'm doing right now is I'm trying to encourage you guys. Encourage one another day after day. That's what we're doing. We're encouraging each other. Let's press in all the more. So pray for peace in Israel. Pray for peace in this whole conflict. Pray that they'll meet the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. Pray that Hamas will come to Christ before it's too late. What kind of testimony would that be if these wicked men who did these wicked things came to Jesus Christ and perhaps God will use something like that, like an Apostle Paul. Imagine someone was giving a sermon like this in 34 AD. Pray for the Pharisees that they would come to Jesus Christ. Pray for people like Paul, the Pharise Saul, the Pharisee. And they're like, we don't want to pray for him. And if they're praying that someone like him would come to faith, look at how God used Paul to bring about the salvation of many, many people. That's our heart. Salvation in the Middle East, salvation around the world. And may re we rejoice and lift up our heads for our redemption is draw drawing near. Amen.